0: Incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. Preserve my life, for I am godly. Save your servant who trusts in you. You are my God. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for to you do I cry all the day. Gladden the soul of your servant, for to you, O Lord, do I lift up my voice. For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. Give ear, O Lord, to my prayer. Listen to my plea for grace. In the day of my trouble, I call upon you, for you answer me. There is none like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. For you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. Teach me your ways, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. I give thanks to you, O Lord my God, with my whole heart, and I will glorify your name forever. For great is your steadfast love toward me. You have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. O God, insolent men have risen up against me. A band of ruthless men seeks my life, and they do not set you before them. But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Turn to me and be gracious to me. Give your strength to your servant and and save the son of your maidservant. Show me a sign of your favor that those who hate me may see and be put to shame. Because you, O Lord, have helped me and comforted me. All men are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, and the flowers fall. But the our, God stands
1: forever. our epistle lesson this morning is found in the book of Galatians, reading from chapter 1, verse 11, through chapter 2, verse 10. Hear God's word. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. And what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ They only were hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, To them, we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seem to be influential, what they are makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary... that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, as we receive your word with thanks this morning, we receive it as a word that you have spoken to us, that you have given for our understanding, our apprehension of the truth. Lead us and guide us into all truth this morning. And speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. Harper Lee the Pulitzer Prize-winning author of To Kill a Mockingbird. She died in February of 2016. She was a bit of a recluse, shy of publicity. She published her first novel in 1960, And then because of the resounding success, she retired from public life in 1964. Her novel is considered to be a modern classic. Many of you no doubt would have read it. It's never gone out of print. A group of British librarians ranking books to read before you die actually ranked To Kill a Mockingbird above the Bible. In our culture, it's considered canonical. You need to read this. Tremendous success. But Harper Lee rarely gave interviews, and she never completed another novel. But in July of 2015, Harper Collins published another novel. It was a lost manuscript by Harper Lee. It was entitled, Go Set a Watchman. A controversy immediately erupted amongst the literary community, because it wasn't sure where this came from. The woman who was so shy and reticent to be in public, was she really on her deathbed now publishing one final book? People asked the question, is this the sequel and the climax to Kill a Mockingbird? It has many of the same characters. Some people believe that it was a failed first draft that was never intended to be published. Manuscript was found in a safe deposit box in 2011. It's set 20 years later, and so the entire situation is ripe for controversy. The characters are largely the same, but the hero seems to be a flat contradiction. Atticus Finch is not the race warrior that we found in To Kill a Mockingbird. So people are puzzled. Was this what she wanted? Was it a sequel and a climax that takes us into further depth of the complications of race in our country? Or was it a failed first draft that was never to be received, never to be read, never intended to be published? And it's this very same question that some Jewish Christians in the first century were asking after they heard the Apostle Paul preach his gospel. You see, these false teachers that Paul mentions in Galatians chapter 1, who had followed him to this region of Galatia, they followed up Paul's ministry, and they went to the Gentile converts that he had won for Christ, and they said, now you must submit yourself to the Jewish law. That yes, you must believe in Jesus, but now you must become Jewish. You must go through the rite of circumcision, and then you must submit yourself to all that the Torah says. This was the controversy. We find out about it explicitly in Acts chapter 15, where Luke tells us that it was Pharisaic Christians who had converted. These were people who believed and trusted in Jesus. They simply thought that something else had to be added on to faith in Christ, that you also must submit to the Jewish law. Paul responds to this with a retort. And he says that a supplemented Christ is a supplanted Christ. That to add on to Christ is to abandon Christ. That the law had been fulfilled by Jesus and it was not necessary to submit to it and to undergo circumcision. There is a war happening here in the early church. It's a battle in which Paul sees the very freedom of the gospel at stake. But it was a question. Is Paul's gospel the sequel to everything that had been said in the Old Testament? It was an intense and heated theological debate. Was Paul an imposter or was he an heir of everything that God was doing in history and now had brought to a climax through Jesus Christ? That was the question. And in Galatians 1, verse 11 through chapter 2, a long section, Paul gives an argument about why we need to receive his gospel, why his gospel is the true account of things, why it can't exactly be trusted, and why it demands our attention, why we need, even today, to listen to him. And he's going to draft four reasons for us, four arguments that compel us to submit ourselves to believe and trust and find goodness in the gospel that he says was revealed to him. First, he says that we should listen because the gospel comes to us by means of revelation. If you'll follow with me in verses 11 and 12. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Paul is making a very unique and special claim that he received a revelation from God, that something descended out of heaven to him that he is now communicating to the world, that God has given him insight and understanding, that this word about the gospel that does not require obedience to the law, submitting yourselves to the Jewish Torah, that that does not come from below, It does not come from men. It comes from above, and it has descended to us. That said, we also see that as Paul argues, he doesn't say that this is a completely new message. He doesn't claim that God is now working in an entirely different way than he has in the past. It's intriguing because Paul then presents himself in an interesting way in verse 15. He says, but when I, but when he Who had set me apart before I was born, and he who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I I might preach him among the Gentiles. And Paul here has pulled on several Old Testament texts. He's actually pulled down hard on the prophet Jeremiah, but explicitly on the prophet Isaiah. And so I want to invite you to turn with me to Isaiah chapter 49. It's helpful for understanding exactly what Paul is doing here. In Isaiah 49, verse 1, the prophet says this, Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. He's addressing the nations. The Lord called me from the womb. From the body of my mother, he named my name. Do you see what's happening here? The prophet says, I was identified from the womb, set apart for God's special purposes to the nations. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver, he hid me away. And he said to me, You are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing in vanity. Yet surely my right is with the Lord, and my recompense with my God. And now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He says, and focus here it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob, and to bring back the preserve of Israel, I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. And what Paul is now declaring is that this prophecy was being fulfilled in his apostolic ministry. That after the coming of the Messiah, after Jesus' death and resurrection, bringing the new age that delivers us and removes and takes away our sins, that now he has come in fulfillment of this. And he is the apostle who is bearing this message to all the ends of the earth, a light to the nations, proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so he puts himself in continuity with everything that God had done previously. And so, yes, there is a new revelation that has taken place. But it is congruous with everything that has happened. That this is the climax. This is the sequel to all that God has been doing since he called Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldeans. Paul is saying you can trust it. You can believe it. You need to bank on it. Now, some will ask, inevitably, and it's a good question So, Chuck, you say that the gospel is true because it descends from God. So it's true because God says it. And people will retort, that's not a very convincing argument. Are we to believe truth about God just because simply God says it? That seems like a tautology. Am I supposed to submit myself to this? But here is what is so unique about Christian faith and Christian revelation is that, yes, we do believe that is an argument. But here's why. We believe that that's an argument, that we receive things by faith from God, that he has revealed these to us, not simply to be silly and not just to be ignorant. But we believe that our human capacity to know and understand the world around us, and especially to assimilate knowledge of God, is so clouded by sin that we can never take the data available around us and collect it together and gain an appropriate knowledge of God. That God has to break into our world and reveal himself to us. That he has to condescend and make it clear. And by his spirit, he has to drive it home. And Paul understands this as a good Jewish theologian, that God must reveal God's self for God to be known. And that's what he is arguing here, is that he has received a revelation of Jesus Christ from God. And that this is a difficulty for many people. People will say, well, prove to me that this is God's truth. And here's the real problem. When it comes to proving God, it's impossible. It simply can't be done, and actually it erects standards that can't exist, because what it asks for is a bar of judgment that's outside of God. It puts something supreme to God. It puts God in the dock under judgment, and friends, if God is under judgment and under the dock, something that he must answer to, then obviously he's not God. And so Christians have affirmed that the Bible and the revelation of God attests to itself. And there are evidences that come alongside and complement it and build this up. But that the word of God is self-attesting, showing forth its glory, and then it works in power. And so we receive it by faith. And this is the first thing Paul is going to say about why we should trust him. That this is a revelation that descends from heaven. Now, second, he's going to enter more into the supporting evidence now. But second, he says that we should listen because the gospel transforms us personally. And Paul enters into a large section of autobiography here. But look with me in verse 14. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my father's. This is who Paul was. He was a Shammai Pharisee. He had been trained in the school of Hillel. He was one of the most educated theologians of his day. He was a prominent Pharisee. And then he says, I was extremely zealous for the law. The word zealous here is not just an adjective. It's an important word that functions in the first century in a very particular way. Two hundred years before the life of Jesus, there was a revolt in Jerusalem, which kicked out the Syrians. And it was the Maccabean family that had led the revolt. And their primary call to war was that all who had zeal for the God of Israel needed to purify themselves, submit themselves to the law, and remove any evil from their houses, So first it was a call to purification, then it was a call to battle. Paul identifies himself in that stream of thinking. This should make some sense to us as to why Paul then became a persecutor of Israel. You see, the Maccabeans saw themselves as the true heirs of Phinehas. You know the story from Numbers chapter 25? where some of the Israelites were intermarrying with women from the land, women they were not supposed to take as wives because it was going to introduce idolatry into the nation. It was going to corrupt the church. And so Phinehas grabs a spear and goes into the brother's tent and drives him through. It's a rough scene. And in 200 B.C., some Jews, is the beginning of the Pharisaic party, began to say, this is what Israel needs. We must purify ourselves. Who is zealous for the law? That's what Paul was a part of. He was deeply entrenched in it. He belonged to this movement. He was a leader in it. But then what happens to him? This zealot for the law is then arrested. He's arrested by the grace of God on the road to Damascus. He has stopped cold, Listen to his own account. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. That Paul is giving us a brief summary of what happened to him. And he was in Judaism, a leader in it. And then suddenly, he becomes a leader and a preacher in the church. There's a personal transformation that takes place here that reorients Paul's world. He doesn't just have a new set of presuppositions and propositions that he believes. This has been a redirection of life. He abandons old convictions and adopts new ones. He abandons an old way of being zealous and adopts a new way of being zealous. It is a complete reorientation of life. And friends, that's what the gospel does. At the close of this short letter, Paul will say it's neither circumcision nor uncircumcision, but it's new creation. And when he understands the saving work of God, it's not just simply a fire insurance plan to make sure that you get into heaven. That is one of the most trivial notions of the gospel that you can accept. But Paul understands the gospel to be the creative power of God. The same God who created the world out of nothing and spoke everything into existence is now speaking into you and recreating you and reforming you and refashioning you into what he always intended for you as a human being to be. And he's doing that through the work of his son. It's personal transformation. The Apostle Paul experienced it. And what he's saying to us is that personal transformation gives us an evidence, it's a breadcrumb along the way in which we can see that the gospel is true. Because how else would he have gone from a zealous Jew persecuting to one who then at great cost to himself, in which he lost everything, go to the nations to tell people that Jesus had been raised from the dead. This is the second argument. And you notice what he says in verses 23 and 24. They only were hearing it said. He speaks of the churches in uh, in Judea in Christ. He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. I suppose they did. What else was there to do? A massive personal transformation had taken place. And God offers you the same. But this is a support of the truth and the validity of Paul's gospel. The third argument that Paul brings here is that we should listen because the gospel also brings social transformation. That There's not just a personal transformation that takes place in the creative powers of God that are coming to bear in the world through Jesus Christ, but there's also something socially that begins to unfold. You find this in chapter 2, in verse 3. Paul speaks of another trip to Jerusalem, in which he goes up to the apostles to see if he had run in vain. He goes to submit to them what he is preaching amongst the Gentiles. And on this trip, he brings along Titus. And Titus was an uncircumcised Gentile. Verse 3 But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Paul brings Titus, and he's giving people the history that the apostles, and especially the pillar apostles, who he names as James, Cephas, who is Peter, and John, that these men did not require Titus to be circumcised. In other words, the, the order of the early church was not for Gentiles to become Jews in order to be Christians, that that was not the way it worked. And so what Paul is proclaiming here, that God is now forming a new and different race. That it was not Jew and Gentile, but there was now a third race called Christian. That it was Jew plus Gentile together in one family who now share one common creed. And it was that creed that was the basis of their unity and family together that groups that had been separated and torn apart by thousands of years of history, that deadly hated each other, that couldn't stand one another, could now come together in peace. Now, of course, the Romans had their own version of this. It was called the Pax Romana. And they declared that they had established peace throughout the known world, the parts of the world that they knew of. And they had established some measure of peace. That peace, of course, was enforced by the threat of violence. That's what crucifixions in Jerusalem were about. Keep the peace or that happens to you. And it was no real peace. It was one bought by the threat of violence and war. And what Paul is proclaiming here, that through his gospel, that race is nullified That there is no Jew and Gentile, there is no black and white, there is no Hutu and Tutsi, or any other way that you socially want to divide human beings. That the church is now one new family, a third race of those who are gathered by faith in Jesus. And you say, well, how does that new society exactly get founded? It's important to consider the words of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Bonhoeffer was a German theologian. He was killed during the Second World War. He writes this in his book, Life Together What determines our brotherhood is what that man is by reason of Christ. Our community with one another consists solely in what Christ has done to both of us. And do you hear the apostolic gospel ringing in that statement? That our community with one another, our family as a church, consists in what Christ has done to both of us. Because when we place our faith in Christ, without adding anything else to it, faith in Christ, we are declared to be right with God. That we gain the label righteous. Our sins are forgiven. Not because of anything that we've done. And friends, so those social divisions don't stand. That God looks at you, and you, and you, and you, and says, justified. That is his accounting measure. That's how he looks at the church. That's the division he draws. And that leads to this social transformation. That we then translate that into a love for the neighbor. That we recreate our social boundaries around this that we don't relate to one another based on race or other social divisions that we can create. This past week, I had the opportunity at our presbytery meeting to hear from uh, Dr. Emmett Price. He's an African-American who uh, teaches at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary in their Boston campus, at their Hamilton campus. He came to speak to our presbytery, a group of predominantly white men, about the issues of race. He was bold and courageous in doing so. But the fascinating moment for us was when he explained to us the history of the black church, his terminology. He said, well, what you need to understand is that prior to the Emancipation Proclamation, that there were some black churches. But here's the main thing. Most slaves were sitting in the balconies of the churches at that point in time. They were taught and they were Christianized in the balconies of the churches that populated the American South. And then the Emancipation Proclamation happens. And what did we do? We knew that this declared that people were equal. And so we removed them from the church. It meant that they could be deacons and elders. They were fellow church members on a equal standing with us. That couldn't happen. And so African Americans were removed and told to form their own churches. And friends, this is the sad legacy of our own country, even of our own Presbyterian tradition. Some parts participating in it, some parts not. Because it's anti-gospel it works against the logic that paul is working that there's a theological truth that we have been justified and made right with god through christ and then that then brings a social reality and a social transformation where we don't draw lines in our fellowship and we don't kick people out and say they can't belong because they're not equal that that is sub gospel and what paul is arguing is that the freedom of the gospel to create an unlikely community of Jew and Gentile is a demonstration to the world that everyone should take notice because of what's happening in this congregation of Christians, that people who have nothing to do with one another, who normally don't fraternize, who normally don't belong together, that those people are gathered together in one family, sharing one creed. That is what Paul is arguing here about why his gospel is believable. The fourth and final argument that Paul will present here, though, about why we should believe and trust his gospel is that we should listen to this gospel because it possesses apostolic approval. Now, some people in reading this passage will find this a difficult point to accept. Because Paul has a mixed opinion about his relationship to the other apostles. They were the ones who witnessed Jesus raised from the dead first. And Paul acknowledges that he was the last and that he was the least. That he was a persecutor of the church of God. And so he says at times that you may think there's something, but God shows no partiality. But then you also must note that Paul goes to Jerusalem... In order to see if he had run in vain. He was working in conjunction with them. He sees himself as a fellow apostle. And you note what happens here in Galatians 2. They approve of him. Follow in verses 7-10. through On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Paul argues with the Galatians that, yes, you're not to listen to these false teachers. They are coming to you unauthorized. They do not represent the apostolic tradition, that they have gone off on their own train tracks. They are running along their own steam. They have created their own tradition, their own gospel, and it is another gospel. But the gospel I bring to you is in concert with all of the apostles. Now, we're going to note next week that Peter seems to have a moment of equivocation, and he does. Peter begins to withdraw himself from the Gentile Christians. And it's a good question. Why exactly does he do that? Why does Peter begin to relate Jews and Gentiles differently? Especially given his missionary activity in in Acts chapter 8 and Acts chapter 10 and dealing with Gentiles. Why does he do that? Why does he make a hash out of his gospel? As you know, Peter's a bit (laughs) hard-headed. He messes up some. But one of the things that's happening here... And I believe the best theory for understanding what takes place is that there was a political battle in the early church. Paul says this pretty clearly in verse 4, yet because of false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment. You read about this in Acts 15.5 as well, where it's plainly expressed that Christians who were from Pharisaic backgrounds were saying that Gentiles needed to observe the law. This was the battle. And it seems that the reason this was particularly being enforced is that Judaism had a special license to operate from the Roman Empire. You typically had to worship the Roman gods and bow the knee to Caesar, But do you know one of the exceptions in the Roman Empire who that was given to? The Jews. They did not have to bow the knee to Caesar. And so you can imagine that as Christianity spread and people began to say, What is this new religion? some people were saying they deny the gods. And so, what was the most convenient way to skirt that accusation? We're part of the Jewish faith, we're part of Judaism. We belong to that. We are the climax and fulfillment of the Jewish story. And that was the argument that was presented. And the pressure that began to fall on the early church, especially in the city of Jerusalem, was that the Christians, the early Christians, needed to be able to say, we belong to the Jewish faith, and we're under the Jewish license. Do you gain some compassion for why they were trying to enforce the law now? They were trying to keep their family safe. They were trying to protect themselves against the beast of the Roman Empire who would kill them. They were trying to keep themselves from being marginalized. There were lots of good reasons to do what they did. But the Apostle Paul retorts loudly. That to supplement Christ was to supplant him. That to add on to him was to abandon him. That this was the wrong move. That he was willing to suffer and the entire community needed to be willing to suffer and to identify with Christ rather than bring ourselves back into slavery. And this is what the apostles, those original witnesses of the resurrected Jesus, this is what they had bought into And in Acts 15, Peter self-corrects. And they all agree that they were not going to go the way of the Pharisaic Christians. That was not the right path. And that's the apostolic tradition that we receive. Paul's gospel is a part of it. That's what has been handed down to us even today. And friends, we need to know why we believe what we believe. That God has revealed himself to us in a unique way. Through this vessel, the Apostle Paul, one he set apart from the womb to declare light to the nations. That's what we receive even 2,000 years later. And that this message, it brings transformation, personal transformation, in which we change because the creative powers of God fall on us. And then it also brings social change. Social transformation around us because of what we believe now about those who are in Christ. We look at one another differently. And all this because it is the apostolic message certified by those men who saw the risen Jesus and then all of them except John and he did so still in suffering died because of their faith. Friends, that's the argument for why we receive God's Word, as given to us in the New Testament and the Old Testament, is true and reliable. It descends from God and then is supported by this massive amount of credible testimony. So believe it. Trust it. That's the truthfulness of the gospel. And it brings all these powers of new creation to you. And so trust Him. Submit to Him. Don't supplant Him. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for all of your gospel truth. All that you have revealed to us in various times and various ways. But especially for the Apostle Paul, that you've used him as an instrument. And that you set us free in him. Lord, we ask that you would keep us from supplanting Christ. That we not try to supplement him, add on to him, increase him. That we simply put our faith in him and allow him to be our justifier. He who makes us right. And may the fruits of new creation abound in us and in our community. Help us, God. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.